Tired of the negative news and flashover substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and PhD with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamline, news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. My co-host Larry Dersham and I have a dynamite show for you tonight. We are going to be joined by the one and only Alan Dershowitz for our second half to talk about all things politics and constitutional law. So you do not want to miss this. I mean, it's going to be such a lively conversation. We're really, really looking forward to it ourselves. And speaking of the Constitution, there is a constitutional challenge that has been levied against the recall election. Now, we've done a lot of talking about the recall election and the ballots are not only in the mail, but they've arrived at our homes already. So people are already voting and there is a federal lawsuit to either halt the election or have the governor's name added to the second question. So here's a little bit of the insight. At issue in this lawsuit is not who's on the ballot, but how it is structured. Because remember, California voters have to answer two questions. The first is, should Governor Newsom be recalled? And remember, he needs, we need, the whoever wants to vote for the recall need over 50% to proceed. But then the second question is, of the colorful cast of candidates who appear on the ballot, who should replace him? So the this federal lawsuit is literally taking the state to court. The two plaintiffs, one of whom is a lawyer from L.A., go figure, uh, are they're alleging that that's not fair because, after all, it should be one person, one vote. But for people that want to recall the governor, it's one person, two votes. The first, whether or not to recall him, and the second, who should be his replacement. Now, this has caused much confusion. And there have been many in the Democratic Party that have said, no, you only need to answer one of the two questions, which is true. And they're saying you should answer only the first one, should the governor be recalled. But the, the basis of this lawsuit, if not to halt the recall altogether, is to actually have the governor be an option on question number two. Larry, this is all pretty complicated. Do you think voters are gonna be able to figure this out? I think they will be, Wendy. Uh, there's just two votes. I've actually received my ballot in the mail already. And uh, two simple questions. If you, uh, on question one, whether to recall or not, you want, if you do want to recall the governor, you need to vote yes. Uh, on the second thing, uh, second part of it, you're going to choose between, I counted them on my ballot, there's 46 candidates. And Governor Newsom is not one of those. So 46 candidates to choose from. But the one that gets the most votes out of that list of 46 is going to be the winner uh, should Governor Newsom be recalled. That's right. And I hope I hope everybody's ballot looks just like yours, Larry, because if not, then we have a bigger problem than this. <laughs> right. So, so speaking of those 46 people that are running, there is no runoff in a recall election it is whoever gets the most votes if the governor is recalled wins now here that is part of the problem argue some of those that are against this recall going forward basically what this lawsuit argues is that technically newsom could receive more votes than any other candidate but still be removed from office and be replaced with someone that received 
fewer votes. Now, just to give you an idea of how this works in perspective, remember back in 2003 in the recall election where Gray Davis lost his seat, Arnold Schwarzenegger, remember, he had over 48.5% of the second ballot vote. That was more than the 44.6% of voters who supported keeping Governor Gray Davis in office. So you see, we didn't have that problem back then, but we also didn't have this sort of preemptive strike being argued so close to an election. Now, Larry, you and I are both lawyers. I mean, what do judges think about motions uh, to asking for such drastic measures being filed so close in time to the event they're seeking to halt? I think it's a Hail Mary pass, as they say, because <laughs> the ballots have already gone out. Like I said, my whole family, we have our ballots here already. Uh, but they do have an interesting point, Wendy. They say, say 10 million people voted and say that the people, the, the number of people to recall Newsom would be 5 million and one votes to re- remove him. And the number of people that wanted to keep him in office would be 4,999,000. So he got a lot of votes, but then they they say that that's not fair because it, then when you go to the second part, you're choosing Larry Elder is currently uh, in the lead at, at 18%, and he would only need 1.8 million to become our next governor, even though Governor Newsom had nearly 500, um, uh, you know, million people vote in favor of him. So that's their argument, but I don't think it's going to fly. Uh, they tried this with Gray Davis, and it didn't work. Well, you know, the most the most interesting thing about, I think, this recall election in and of itself um, coming up on September 14th is the narrowing of the polls between, let's just say, several months ago and today. It's just been incredible to see the trajectory of that narrowing margin. You know, and, and I know how it is. You know, last summer, everybody was blaming Governor Newsom for everything, you know, everything from the, from the pandemic to the mask mandate to following the instructions of the health advice he was given. Um, But this summer was very different, and uh, we had a lot going on, not just rolling blackouts and wildfires. I mean, you can't blame everything on the governor. But we also had some very um, tough questions that Governor Newsom had to, to answer to regarding his mandates and then his own personal behavior. And I think that some of the Republican contenders really capitalized on that. But you mentioned Larry Elder. He's really running out in front of the pack. And yes. he's far right of, of much of the uh, some of the, the other Republicans that are running. And, you know, I think the challenge has been for those other Republican contenders, the ones that have been participating in debates, Larry Elder has not, um, but for them really to distinguish themselves from each other. What yes. do you think about that? Have they been able to do so? I haven't had a chance to watch the debates, but I have listened to Larry Elder as a talk uh, radio show gentleman for years, and he seems to be so on right. point. He knows he has all his facts and figures down. He's never been, I don't, to my knowledge, in the government, but he really knows his his facts. And so I, mean, I Donald I, Trump I, wasn't either. So I think true. that you know, as far as name recognition goes, uh, I do agree. Larry Elder certainly has an advantage there. Um, but Larry, I know you've got some some other topics on on your heart and on your mind today as well. Yeah, I this is commentary. So I call this commentary the world's most dangerous plague. And the views are my own. So what's the most dangerous plague of all? Just a year ago, Dr. Fauci was viewed as the medical expert who would guide us through safely the frightening pandemic. But now we know He encouraged nationwide lockdowns based on flawed computer modeling from British scientist Neil Ferguson. Now we know he lied to Senator Rand Paul at a congressional hearing 
and funded dangerous gain-of-function research outlawed in the U.S. by shifting the funding for that research over to the Wuhan Institute of Virology in communist China. In fact, in the words of Senator Ron Paul, Dr. Fauci could be culpable for the entire pandemic. But that's not the only nor the most bizarre truth now emerging with regards to the plague uh, that we now find ourselves in. The government's response to the pandemic is even worse than the virus. The lockdowns that begin in California quickly spread like a California wildfire across our nation. Small businesses were shuttered, many for good. Children were forced into remote learning with little opportunity for physical exercise or social contact. Depression skyrocketed among children. Just check the children's hospital uh, on this, any children's hospital in California where suicide ideation cases far outnumber hospitalizations for COVID. Drug and alcohol addiction, as well as child and spousal abuse, have surged under the lockdowns when the government stopped following the science and began following the political science in a massive uh, big lie campaign. So uh, the lockdowns gave us uh, an excuse to unconstitutionally alter the voting laws, opening up the floodgates to massive cheating in our sacred elections. Does anybody really think the current occupant of the White House got 80 million votes? But perhaps worst of all, the federal, state, and local government fear campaigns evidenced by their maniacal obsession with forcing every living human being to be injected with a, uh, a experimental messenger RNA gene therapy vaccine. Uh, even now they're asking for two- and three-year-olds and now even pregnant women is the government kidding? You would think, yeah, but no, they're not kidding. Or what about their forced masking of our children in the government schools? Official, uh, even though children pose zero to little chance of becoming ill or spreading the virus to others, are considered their suppression of free speech. Though the mainstream and social media censorship, they are preventing knowledge about preventative early treatment medicines such as hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin that would save saved many thousands of American lives. So what's the biggest dangerous uh, or the biggest plague of all? In my opinion, in my humble opinion, it's not COVID, but the government. Well, it's- wow, Larry, that was quite a commentary. I, we've got to wrap it up here just briefly, but uh, you know, I know there are some people listening that agree with some of that. There are many people listening that do not, but I think the fact that we're having this dialogue, this discussion, the the marketplace of ideas where we can get together and share our opinions on what we think about all of that um, is vitally important, as is the evolution of the science. I mean, Larry, think about what you and I were talking about at this time last year on the radio. We didn't even know what ivermectin was probably, and we certainly... Um, We certainly were hearing a very different story from Dr. Fauci, who, to his credit, took to the airwaves in front of a microphone the world the other day and admitted that the COVID vaccines are losing efficacy over time. Um, And the reason for that is now they're going to be recommending a booster so people can stay protected. Um, But it's just incredible the way we as a nation, as a world, have done as much as we have to, to really keep up with the science. So we're going to keep bringing you all the headlines with the silver lining. Um, and I, I'm going to break through the sil- as the silver lining. Larry just gave you a, a, a great commentary. And uh, we are now going to tease what is going to be a phenomenal second half. We need to take a short break, but please stick around. You are going to meet what many people consider to be one of America's best known lawyers, where we will talk about big tech, big media, constitutional law. It's Alan Dershowitz, second half. Stick around. We will be back in the clash. 
News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. Well, as I told you at the beginning of the show, we have a very important, a sensational guest for you this second half. Larry, who do we have on the line? Sure, Wendy. Alan Dershowitz is an American lawyer known for his work in U.S. constitutional law and American criminal law. He taught at Harvard Law School from 1964 through 2013, where he was appointed as the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law in 1993. Mr. Dershowitz is a regular media contributor, political commentator, and legal analyst, and still serves as a high-profile defense lawyer in a number of landmark cases. He's also the author of six national bestsellers and has sold over a million copies of his books worldwide. He's been interviewed by all the major U.S. TV networks and is considered by many to be the best-known criminal lawyer in the world. Thank you for joining us today, Alan. Well, thanks. I'm no longer interviewed by all the TV networks. Uh, CNN has banned me. Uh, CNBC has banned me. You know, cancel culture. So oh. if you're not on their side, you can't be on their shows. And so today, people pick TV by which side they're on. There are no more Walter Cronkites. You know? Yeah, no, that's totally true. Hey, uh, Alan, I love being on TV with you, and I love watching you when I'm not on with you. But I wanted to ask you, uh, in addition to all of your best-selling books, you've been the subject of two New Yorker cartoons, a New York Times crossword puzzle, a trivial pursuit question, and rumor has it there's even a pastrami sandwich sold at Fenway Park that's named after you. What does it feel like, Alan, to be a household name? Well, first of all, the pastrami sandwich was canceled oh. um, <laughs> after I defended <laughs> President Trump in front of the Senate. So you can no longer eat the dirsch in Fenway Park. Oh. Um, you can probably find it somewhere else. In terms of crossword puzzles, I am so proud of my daughter, my daughter Ella got a crossword oh. puzzle in the Sunday New York Times that she co-wrote. And I have to tell you, I couldn't solve it. She is so much smarter than I am. <laughs> you know, she went to Yale. I only went to Brooklyn College. So I couldn't figure out her crossword. But uh, the, the, the crossword aficionados tell me it's one of the great, great crosswords. And, you know, the Sunday Times is the epitome of getting a crossword published. So I'm That's really right. proud of my daughter, Ella. Wow. Hey, Alan, with the rise of the so-called Me Too movement in recent years, are we as Americans in danger of becoming a society where one can be found guilty by a mere accusation, at least in the public mind's eye? There's no question about that. Today, if you're accused, you're guilty. If you're accused by a woman, you're guilty. The Attorney General of New York made the bigoted, uh, sexist statement recently that everybody should believe women when they're against men. Don't believe men. Uh, believe women. How is that different from what they used to say in the Deep South when they said, believe whites, don't believe blacks? Uh, or when they said it in the 15th century, believe Christians, don't believe Jews or Muslims. Uh, you cannot categorize, and the Me Too movement categorizes. Uh, and uh, we have to look at every claim by every woman or man of sexual abuse and take it very seriously and investigate it. But then the evidence determines who to believe. And the thumb, the sh uh, of gender should not be put on the scale of justice. 
You know, Alan, uh, one of the other topics that uh, we talked about in the first half, um, it, it's speaking of sort of the, the credibility of some of the lawsuits that are brought generally, not in the sexual assault arena, but in the political arena, uh, we are talking a lot almost every day about this recall election in California. Um, now, I know just generally, uh, it's interesting that there was a federal lawsuit that was filed just recently trying to put the brakes on this lawsuit because they said that it violated this one person, one vote rule, because there's actually two questions on the ballot. The first being, should the governor be recalled? And then the second, of course, being which of this colorful cast of candidates should replace him. But Alan, isn't it true that recall elections are nothing new to California or perhaps any other state? No, it started out with Jacksonian democracy back in the 1830s. And recall elections have been part of the tradition of America. I don't love them myself. But there's nothing unconstitutional about them. And it's absurd to say that it denies one person one vote because there are two items on the ballot. Uh, for sure, on the other foot, if this were a Republican who were uh, being recalled, the same people who are making this argument would be making the exact opposite argument. You know, there are some academics out there. My colleague Larry Tribe is one of them. You can always predict how he will interpret the Constitution by which side it's on. Uh, he will always interpret the Constitution to, to support his view of the Democrats. And, and if the shoe goes on the other foot, he'll change his mind. Uh, for example, I'll give you an example. When Bill Clinton was, in, was being investigated, he said categorically as a constitutional scholar, a sitting president can't be prosecuted. And then when Trump became president, he said, oh, a sitting president can be prosecuted. The only thing that changed, obviously, was who the sitting president was. So when you hear about <laughs> constitutional experts, particularly Professor Tribe and some others of his ilk, just disregard what they're saying. It's not constitutional law. It's partisan politics. And you have to ask the shoe on the other foot question. If the shoe were on the other foot, what would they be arguing? And they'd be arguing exactly the opposite of what they're arguing today. You can count on that. Well, hey, Alan, in your opinion, what's the influence, good or bad, of the mainstream media and big tech? What are the, what's their influence on our First Amendment rights, such as our freedom of speech? And do you see uh, censorship of these mega corporations as a problem we should be concerned well, with? Absolutely. That's why I wrote my new book, The Case Against the New Censorship. The new censorship is censorship by the private media. This is the first time in American history where the First Amendment has been used to censor. Let me explain what I mean. Usually the First Amendment is used against censorship. I've litigated dozens of First Amendment cases, always against the government. I've always had the First Amendment on my side, and I've won nearly every case. Today, it's the big media, Twitter and YouTube and uh, uh, Facebook. They claim the First Amendment right to censor. Jefferson and Madison would be turning over in their graves if they heard that the First Amendment was being used not as a shield to protect free speech, but as a sword to attack free speech. Look, I'm no supporter of Donald Trump. I voted against him twice. But he makes a point when he says you can go on today, the social media, and hear the Taliban talk about how important it is to subjugate women. You can hear that, but you can't hear the former president of the United States on any of these social media. There's something very wrong with selective censorship and the way it's done by the big media today. And it's uh, inconsistent with the spirit of the First Amendment. You know, Alan, you, you made a comment on TV once that I have uh, cited many times, and I've, I've always cited you as the source. You said, President uh -huh. Trump's President Trump. 
And I found that to be incredibly not only witty, but significant in that any sitting president, and I say this today because uh, Joe Biden, President Biden has just made some um, proclamations and continues to talk about withholding federal funds from different types of places if they don't uh, comply with mask mandates or vaccinations or this and that. And I know that these kinds of cases seem to be ripe for uh, at least wending their way up to the Supreme Court at some point. Is that something you see happening in the near future? Because after all, precedent might also trump President Biden, although it doesn't have the same ring to it, right? <laughs> well, you know, um, if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, she would have been impeached um, in the first couple of months in office on the grounds of abuse of power. And I would have been on the other side of the case arguing for her. Uh, and then people on Martha's Vineyard and other places would talk to me. Uh, now they don't talk to me because they think I'm on the wrong side because I defended the Constitution. When I defended the Constitution, it didn't matter to me who the president was. I would defend it, whether it's Clinton, whether it's Obama, whether it's Biden or whether it's Trump or whether it's uh, Richard Nixon. Um, for me, it doesn't matter who the president is. The question is, what does the Constitution say? And I think these cases will get to the Supreme Court. It'll go slowly. And we're not going to see a rush of cases in the Supreme Court. And um, we don't know who will be on the Supreme Court in a year or two years or three years from now. Um, and so we have to wait and see and how the cases will be decided. But I think the Supreme Court will be very sensitive to suppression of free speech. And I think also states will be moving against some of these um, corporate giants who now control free speech in America under the antitrust laws as they have in Europe. So we're watching uh, a progress. We're watching uh, a working uh, change of what's going on. And we don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's a work in progress. Uh, Alan, uh, you have defended so many famous clients, including Klaus Van Bulow, yep. O.J. Simpson, Julian Assange, Donald Trump, and so many more. Is there a case that sticks out in your mind above the others? I know that's a really hard question. Especially with one well, minute left. We only have a minute left. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, it's one that you didn't mention. I defended a man named Natan Sharansky, who was a Soviet dissident. And I helped him, along with another lawyer named Erwin Kotler, get out of prison after many years. And that's the case I identify, identify with most strongly. The two cases that have got me into the most controversy and trouble have been, obviously, Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I wish I hadn't taken the Jeffrey Epstein case, but I'm proud of having defended the Constitution on behalf of President Trump. So, uh, you know, those are the cases. But I've had so many cases. I've had 250 cases. I have the best winning record of homicide cases of any lawyer in history. And um, uh, I'm proud of my record. And I've defended bad guys and good guys and a lot of people in between. That is so great. Alan, you know, you're you're a pro. Like we said one minute and you wrapped it up right to the second. That is just amazing. I'll tell you, that's another one of your many talents. We want to thank you so much for joining us. And, and to oh, our sure. listeners, I am going to I'm going to Google the recipe for the Dersh in case anybody wants to make that pastrami sandwich. <laughs> Sounds good. Obviously, you can't buy it anymore. Yeah, it sure does sound good. Alan, thank you for joining uh, look, us. I love pastrami. Thanks a lot. Be thank well. you, Alan. Uh, and thank you to our listeners. You have been listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. Have a wonderful, safe weekend. And please join us next week for more headlines with a silver lining. God bless you.
Thank you for joining us for today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. 